Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we appreciate you tuning in. We want to get 1% better together every day. We're hoping to share the habits, the mindsets, and the experiences of executive leaders in military, government, and technology to allow us to align with our purpose, keep us motivated on the path to becoming our best selves, and to achieve our goals, whatever they happen to be. We want to help you find a mentor. So please remember to follow us wherever you happen to be listening, along with Instagram, LinkedIn, and our other socials. Today's episode is with Ron Cruz. Not only is he the president and CEO of Logenix, an international logistics company specializing in developing nations, but he's a published author. The name of his book is Lies, Bribes, and Peril, a collection of lessons he's learned from doing business all over the globe and a lot of what we cover today in the podcast. Things like shame and pride and how that represents itself in business, destructive business partnerships, the collapse of the Soviet Union and what that did for him to actually expand his business. Lessons he's learned from an entrepreneurial mother. Lessons he's learned from a strict father. Chernobyl, modernizing the reactors. When work becomes passion and his favorite quote, the secret to success is doing the common thing uncommonly well, said by John D. Rockefeller Jr. So a great chat coming up. He's one of these people that you can probably sit and talk to for hours. As always, we love our partnership with Northern Virginia Technology Council. We host Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. This month's episode is going to be with MITRE and learning a little bit more about their Center for Data-Driven Policy. Tickets are free, but please sign up in advance at nvtc.org. Let's get into the episode. I'm happy to pontificate on just about anything. uh, Yeah. Philip. Well, Ron Cruz, good to have you. Good to have you on the show. Thank you for allowing us to be here in your office. Saw a lot of great quotes. One of the things I noticed first is all of the different parts of the world. Are these all places that you've been or done business in? I've seen pictures of a number of different military bases. Well, and that's that's a kind of a part of our history there. But for instance, all of this currency I picked up in the picture behind you. You've got money on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> And there's there's more of that. There's another one in my office. <clears throat> this is a painting. So a friend of mine's wife got me into interested in art years ago. And then as I became very interested in culture, I started picking up art. So this piece of art is from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. And this is from Kazakhstan. Uh, the far one is from India. Yeah. And this is from Kenya. Okay. That's uh, from Hong Kong. Well, already, we can already tell, like, so let's, you know, let's get into it a little bit. I guess the first thing most people would want to know is Logenics. Am I saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. Logenics. Logenics, Logenics, people say it both. So what do you guys do? What's your specialty? What's your focus? It says international. You're obviously taking things from different nations. Yes. Well, well, primarily we're developing world specialists. So, yes, we're in the logistics business and we're, by definition, we're a freight forwarder. We are a non-asset 
based forward or we have licenses to operate out of the United States and out of Europe. And basically our forte is operating into the developing world and the, the toughest regions of the world. What are some examples of when you say toughest developing regions? What do you mean? Well, right now, let's, for example, places like Yemen. Yeah. Now, it's not something that we don't have a lot going to Yemen, but as you know, Yemen's in crisis. There's a, there's a proxy war going on there between <clears throat> Saudi Arabia and Iran. And getting things in there is very, very difficult. And many of our clients were having problems getting things in. So we basically uh, have kind of usurped the UN and offering better services and greater visibility in, in both cargo delivery and visibility and cost visibility. What, what kind of cargo, like food and things? They- in, in the Yemen, it's all medicines. Okay. So we handle more public health medicines and medical supplies into the developing world than any, any other company in the world. Mm. So we've got some, some very big billion dollar competitors that, that don't do the kind of developing world uh, and the size of it that we do. How big is your team to be doing this? Within Logenics right now, we've probably got about, I'm going to say about 120 full-time employees in different offices around the world. And then we probably have contracted employees through partners of probably another 70 to 80. So on the work we do, we've probably got a, between 100 uh, or 200 full-time and contracted. And how many, like how many offices around the, the world do you have? You- Oh, region. We, we've got partners. Yeah. Our our own owned offices are here, the UK. We've got a joint venture in, in Holland. We have an office in Nigeria, we have an office in Dubai, and we've got five offices currently in India. We've got an office in Pakistan, an office in uh, Afghanistan. How'd you first get started with doing this kind of work? Well, really, this? I kind of fell into it. I got out of school. I went to New York City. I got a job down on Wall Street. What did you do in school? I, I was an economics major. Ec- economics. Basically, basically liberal arts. And your plan was to do? I had no plan. No, you didn't really even know. <laughs> you know, generally, I say I, I matured on the very slow end of the guy scale. Yeah. And we all mature much slower than ladies. Well, that's encouraging because I feel like I'm running pretty behind. <laughs> so and, and maybe still maturing. But so really, I knew I wanted to do something. I had no idea. I mean, at 21, 22, you know, my... You know, raised on death row in life at 21, 22 was to have a good time. Growing up, were you always, were you the type of kid to get in trouble a lot? Were you going against the grain, against the rules? So I realized that I I learned that just kind of intuitively, instinctively, I was an entrepreneur because, yeah, I've been in trouble all my life. I mean, not, not, not intentionally, but I got caught doing everything and I really didn't care that I got caught. But so what do we call that when people are trying to figure out, do they have what it takes to be an entrepreneur or do you think you can coach those qualities? But what are some of those things that looking back, you feel like this is kind of what got me to make that first move or take that first risk. These are the kind of things I was up to and doing. Well, the the first risk was really kind of easy. I had a couple of partners and really the company we were working for was going out of business. Yeah. How old were you at this time? This is the first Uh, company you started? 29. So you're 29. You did Wall Street for a while. Very short while, yes. And, And, you know, I I was probably their worst employee and just wasn't happy and and wasn't 
succeeding and really wanted to be uptown. That's what I'd come to New York for. I mean, for none of the right reasons was I looking for another job. Okay. And then I got a job in the shipping business. And it everything kind of took off from there. Shipping in boats? New York has that port. Like, was it there? Well, basically, or? in another, it was the same industry, freight forwarding. Okay. And, you know, I was growing up slowly. So I started to get some responsibility with that firm and was starting to accept responsibility and enjoying my job, which was kind of a concept that was new to me. <laughs> and I think most young people, it, it, how do you, you know, move along in life after school? So I was going through the same things I think everybody goes through and starting to enjoy it and started to do real well. And then I get, got a big promotion and a, a junior board member position. So here I was, by the time I was 26, I had a junior board member position with this company. And I was now living in Los Angeles and running three or four offices in a huge contract. Did you feel uncomfortable at all about being in that position or was it oh, vulnerable? Yeah. You're 26, right? I remember being 26. Yeah. I, I, and not only that, but I had, I very quickly had a bunch of people reporting to me that were quite a bit older than I was. Yeah, so, what was that dynamic like? So at a very early age, I started learning how important trying to be or learning about management was. And I mean, yeah. I think that's an ongoing process. And, and like most entrepreneurs, I'm impatient as hell. I struggle with it to this day. But being 26 and having to lead people that are what, like in their 40s, maybe? Uh-huh. Some of them, yes. Were they more likely to be like, you don't know what you're talking about, you're too young to even You know understand. what? I, I was really lucky. I was, the, the blessing was I had learned really quickly to be a rainmaker. Oh, because you were a sales guy. You were bringing right. in. So I was a rainmaker. And, and again, by the way my brain works, uh, I was able to come up with ideas that kind of bettered everybody. So everybody was doing well. And that we were recognized. Well, how do you become a rainmaker? What were you doing at the time to, to be able to do that, especially at a young age, compared to someone who's been in that business for 20 years and has those contacts that you just are now building? That's a good question, but it also goes to the fact that I wanted to, to be good. So there's, mm. you know, there's a lot of satisfaction from being good at something. So it goes to a lesson that I learned from my dad when I was about 12 or 13. My dad loved keeping a manicured yard. And as a kid, I did more yard work than I'll ever do the rest of my life. And then at 11 and 12 years old, I was doing a really bad job. My dad said to me one day, you know, it takes just as long to do a bad job as it mm. does a good job. Mm. He said, but if you do a good job, you leave with satisfaction. You actually take something away. Mm. And even as a 12, 13-year-old, it kind of hit me. And then as I was doing it and I was doing a better job, when I was done, I did look back and I go, wow, that looks pretty good. I did a good job. And I was starting to take away satisfaction. So this is kind of where I try to get with people when I hire people is once you get into wanting to do something well and, and you want to, so then, you know, your mind, everything goes to all of the things that it takes to be good at. And you think about it in your spare time and it, it stops yeah. being work. Were you were you making money when you first started? What was that period of were you fearful of like, what am I doing? Like I was fine where I was and, and we thought, like, here we go. So the, the company that we were working for was going out of business. It, it was struggling badly. 
And actually, I kind of got what I call my, my MBA in finance. So we were all called into the headquarters in San Diego every month to review what was going on in all the offices around the world. There were about 25, 30 offices around the world. So I got a look inside of a struggling company in the entire financial picture. So I was getting a phenomenal insight into, you know, the profitability of, of offices around the world and, and why they were profitable, the businesses that they were running, the cash needs that they had, the cash needs of the organization. I mean, just all of the things that were really kind of eye-opening to me at that age. So, and it certainly better prepared me once we decided, well, you know, we're about to have no job anyway here. Why not try to do something on our own? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a real brave risk. We were very close to out of jobs anyway. Yeah, but still, like you had an option to just go find, replicate this position in some other company that's already doing this probably, or, you know, do something else. What I've been learning too is sometimes when mm -hmm. I say, when I make this distinction between entrepreneurs and leaders versus uh, people that aren't, it's not mm -hmm. that they should be entrepreneurial or they should want to pursue leadership qualities. They may be happy right where they are. There's a lot of people that are comfortable with just going to a job where there's little responsibility, little risk. They know exactly how much they're going to make. They're only there for a certain period of time. It's good. They, they live a good life and they don't take the work home with them. And then there's other people that mm -hmm. sound like they're more like people like you that like, you know what, we could do this on our own. And if we're going to be out of a job, that's happening anyway. Now my choices are go work for someone else or we can do this better because we learned so much about what, what wasn't being done. This is our opportunity to go and do it. There was certainly a bit of that. I wish I could say it was, was really bold and brave. But I have to say I didn't, I didn't think a lot about it. I thought all of those thoughts. But I really, and at the time, I look back on this and I think what a wonder it was. I did not see any downside. <laughs> so that... That was that was a blessing. And you're doing this through the, the federal government as a contractor, correct? Some of some it, of yes. It? I mean, there are some markets. So in other words, one of the things I learned early is, is, you know, pick your markets, make sure you're really good at it, sell it hard, but make sure you can actually deliver what you promise. Is that advice that you would give to someone who's an entrepreneur, like starting a business, be narrow in your in your efforts? In the beginning, I've been learning for, for quite a while, but there there's an art to growing a business. You can grow it organically, which is primarily what I've done. You, you can you can grow it by acquisition, which I've done a very little of. I wouldn't say that, that, that I'm an expert at that, but I, I understand growing a, a company organically and how you widen and broaden your markets. You know, if you're going to go completely compete against very big, well-financed companies, you better make sure you're picking the right spot. <laughs> so you built that company and then you sold it. And how did you go from there to Logenix? That company got built and sold because I got into the collapse of the former Soviet Union and I set up the first Russian-American joint venture. To do what? Well, I, I didn't know. I just knew I wanted to be there. Okay. I mean, you had an entire better part of an, well, better part of two continents. <laughs> what year was this? This was uh, 1992. Okay. So I was in there right after Boris Yeltsin stood on that tank at the White House. I was going to, so like, that's not, that's only a couple of years after, like. Oh, no. The, well, the fall was happening by 89. So I got into Eastern Europe in 89 as the curtain was crumbling. Okay. As a matter of fact, I was in Europe when the Berlin Wall was going down. 
as, a, as an aside, I tried so hard to get any hotel or hostel in, in Berlin because I was there right then when it was coming down. I was desperate to get the wall. You couldn't find a hotel. You couldn't find a hostel. You couldn't get anywhere. And I thought, well, I'm not going if I can't find some place to sleep. To stay. <laughs> so anyway, so the, the curtain was crumbling. I got into Bulgaria, hungry. We're, we're doing programs in there. So it was, and then in 91, 92 is when really things completely turned over in terms of the, the Soviet Union crashing. So my first trip in there was June of 1992, and that was months after really the real dissolution of the Soviet Union. The USSR fell in like early 90s, right? 91, late 91, early yeah. 92. And you were physically there. It wasn't like I was doing business there, but from, yeah. I went in there when people, when you had to carry cash. So you had to carry cash everywhere because there were no credit cards being accepted. In like a suitcase or something? Like where'd you keep like. Well, you know, yeah, you know, when you're carrying hundreds, a lot of money doesn't, doesn't occupy that much. You can carry 20 grand and. and in like a jacket pocket or yes, something? Yes, So. And certainly, too, it's not noticeable and tuck some into your suitcase. So I got pretty used to doing that. And so did you have military protection or nothing? It, nothing. nothing. Like, Matter of fact, the very first part of it, we were game theorying how it would happen because you also couldn't get reservations. Aeroflot wasn't really moving and there was nothing else to move around. So I wanted to go to Moscow. I wanted to go to St. Petersburg. Yeah, but what were you doing there? though? Like, what, what was the plan? I didn't know. But I knew I wanted to be there. So I mean, but I don't like I don't understand. You're like, hey. You knew you wanted to be there, but didn't know what you wanted to be there to do. So you had cash because you just sold a company. No, no, I hadn't sold it yet. So oh. that sold in 96. Oh. This is what sold the company. Okay. Oh, right, right. Okay. So, so I got in there. So company's going well, doing well though. You're, you've got yes. business. Yes. Bills are paid. Employees are paid. We, we had already, groceries. we were making, we had become kind of a go-to government contractor for the developing world. So we were doing a lot of work for, for USAID and DOD and DOE. Okay. So I didn't know what was about to come, but I knew that I needed to get in there and understand it. And what I went in and understood was is that, that wow, this, this place is, is so far behind and there was no real thinking about capitalism. I mean, there, there's, it's, there's a, lot of, a lot of it in my book about just how foreign the logic was. I mean, you, you, people weren't, thinking about making money or anything because the entire system for 70 years had not been yeah. around that people didn't get raised with that so i had to find people that did think that way so my first trip in was completely completely disappointing it was an abject failure i didn't i, I remember being on the plane ride home and thinking damn yeah this this opportunity is going to pass me by stuck with it there were some some Big moments, and within the year of that trip, we owned the largest humanitarian effort since World War II, which was going into all 12 republics. We had to get in and learn how the rail system in Russia, in the former Soviet Union, operated. And within a year after that, we owned all of the programs, the, the DOE programs, to basically modernize the all of the Chernobyl type reactors that were all over Russia. So we didn't know at the time what a disaster Chernobyl had almost been, but Europe did. And so there was a lot of 
pressure on I had. There were meetings at the embassy that I had with representatives of the G7 because what we found we had to do, we had to sneak all of this stuff in these huge modernization. They were taking them from analog to digital and these huge panels of, of computer hardware and everything to, to, to go into all of these reactors. And we were essentially sneaking them in. They were going to digital. That's like mid nineties before like internet and all that, right? I when I say, that. when I say analog to digital, you got to remember. So these reactors were, were really with 1950s technology. So they were like just drawing on a piece of paper, and they this. and everybody was worried. I mean, if you if you saw the uh, a miniseries Chernobyl, you know how how close Europe came to being blown up. So there was there were a lot of very important people very interested in making sure that there wasn't another one of those. And quietly, it sounds like right because obviously, right the sensitivity. It's probably better that that happened then when we didn't have the internet and social media and so on, because that'd be mass hysteria. You For wouldn't sure. even be able to contain it or even deal with it or do anything about it. Cause then you have millions of people with their opinion of what should be happening. That's true. So we're, so now we're, we're putting all of this equipment in to uh, modernize the reactors. And then we won then what was known as uh, Nun Luger, it was the huge disarmament treaty that we agreed to with Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. And then we were running in all the equipment to destroy the weapons that the, the, those countries had agreed to destroy. Submarines, missiles, rockets. We're now working with all of the biggest contractors in the world, you know, running cranes in to pull the rockets out of their silos, and we're running these huge guillotine pieces of equipment to, to, to chop the rockets up and then huge melting, you know, they, it like a huge uh, old washing machine. You throw all the metal in and it, it, it melts melt it all down and the copper and all of the other it stuff. Makes, you're coordinating that, but working with Russian companies to accomplish that, or right? Yes, I had gotten lucky and I had found some very, very good, they were former merchant seamen. So they understood the ports, and they understood the Russian rail system because you could go anywhere in Russia and around it because the roads were so bad. So you had to understand and know the, the rail system. Well, these the Trans-Siberian Railroad? The company, barriers and things like that. So oh, translators everywhere. Just, well, translators, I, I have to say so. That the, the, the main partner I brought to the States, his English was, was decent. His, his written English was better. My Russian's non-existent. So he was further along. So I brought him. He stayed at my home for uh, a couple of weeks. So you hired a guy, brought him to your house. Are you married at this time? You had, yeah. You said you had, I was. So, so you're married. So you're doing all this. Like you're in Russia. I'm sure that's, you were there for a while. What about your family during this time? When did you get married? How old were you? I was 35. So you were running the company that you started when you were 29 at this time. How'd you guys meet? Same building. Just proximity. We were, yeah. Happen to just be in right, the same building, right, right. run into the, each other in the elevator or something. Right. Exactly. And then the long and short of it, it didn't last. Yeah. So we grew apart pretty quickly and it, it really didn't survive the, the sale of the company by more than a year or so. It didn't, yeah. Yeah. It was just the classic story growing apart. But you got three kids out of it. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so how old are the kids? The youngest is 26. There's a 26-year-old, 27-year-old, and a 30-year-old. What do you think that your career path has done to affect their career path? Well, from my parents' standpoint, so my dad was the ethics guy, the do, do it right, do oh, yeah. it well, do unto others. My mom was the entrepreneur. 
my mom started three different businesses. Okay. You when I was up. a kid, I grew up around this. She, she originally, she got into the real estate business. Okay. Residential or commercial? Residential. Okay. And was working as a broker, decided that she could do it better. So she started her own. Okay. She made her own signs up. She had her own little, you know, Grace Cruz signs up in yards around town. <laughs> All right. It's quite a thing. In Northern Virginia here? No, this was, I grew up in Oklahoma. Okay. And then she decided, so as you know, in that business, so it's a weekend thing. Well, she had two boys and she wasn't going to give up her weekends. And she decided she would go to school to become a public accountant. And then she started the first H&R Block company there in town and grew that to be a big thing, sold it, and then started her own. So... This was kind of a part of growing up. So you were exposed to the process of taking on risk, working through fear, being entrepreneurial. Not in any way that was tangible to me. Right. It just was happening. What do you think that did for you as an adult? Like, what do you see about yourself now as as an adult in your current stage and throughout your experience? What did for you? Both of those were huge impacts. So my dad was a bit of an idealist. He'd grown up on a farm in Nebraska. And well, he loved growing things. That was his yeah. passion. So he was an educational psychologist by, by education. So he knew what he was doing when he was telling you these things to get into your head. He did. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I grew, both my brother and I grew up <laughs> with that. Trust me. He, he, he knew what he was doing. But his passion was growing things. So that's how the yard thing happened. Yeah. So I get grown up with this whole ethical component. And then my mom was the... The Social Butterfly and the Entrepreneur. You're also an author, too. What's the name of your book? And what's it all about? It's Lies, Bribes, and Peril. What it's about is really there's six major lessons that that if you learn and understand them about how culture applies around the world, you can do business anywhere and be successful. Business in any endeavor, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. But you've got to understand how culture, in fact, affects people's logic, decision-making, problem-solving, communications. But anyway, early on in, in the, the book is about how I got my head handed to me for a few years while I was learning the basics of these lessons. And thinking that, for instance, people... I had a, a Saudi I was doing business with stiff me for... And this was in my first business. I should have been fired probably for it. Stiff me for $60,000 that I had let the credit grow. And I went about trying to collect it. And then he essentially, he lied to me about it, but I confronted him. And it was my first real lesson, and it's one of the things that Americans really struggle with, is the whole concept of face, which I've got a theory that basically as you go east off the United States shores, face grows exponentially. So by the time you get to Asia, face runs the entire social fabric. Meaning like, what will people think? Like you got to save face? And they're, correct. There, there is any degree of shame. Shame. Yeah. That's and it that. comes in such small incremental levels once you get to Asia, like not understanding or a product not being good. I mean, you have to, and, it's, and certainly in a, you, you have to understand that it is the basis of the social fabric, whereas here in America, yeah. This is not something we really grow. I mean, it respect and, and, and avoiding shame and all these are things that we do, but it is not part of our social fabric, much yeah. like it is. And 
It's true in Europe. It's very true in Russia. And it's very true in the in the uh, Arabic world. I mean, growing up in my household, like you know, the the everything was based on shame and blame, and it was just the way that we <laughs> commute. It's the way my parents commuted. That's that's what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Shame and blame. But it's just the way mm-hmm. the commute. It, it's just I don't. It's kind of hard to describe, but there's a sentence structure that's used <laughs> that starts with shame and blame and then ends with the question. You don't just ask, what are you doing? What's the accusation? Let's throw mm-hmm. it up against the wall. Tell you what I think that, you know, other people will think that you're doing and then ask you if that's what you're doing. It, it's just sort of like how the communication structure is. So I can definitely relate to what you're saying. I mean, it sounds like you learn, you learn these things, but you're learning the human condition, mm-hmm. but in different regions and cultures. So how did that your- change? Yeah. Well, what I had done is I had confronted this guy. I mean, literally, I, I was able to get to his office and I, I said, hey, you're stiffing me, man. What's going on? It was the absolute wrong way. And I got some sage advice that basically I had, I had pushed him into a corner and I had left him no out from the concept of face but to lie to me. So from that standpoint, it was my fault. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that. That blew my mind. Wait, it's my fault that he reneged on a debt? Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it was true. I, now it's not, I look back on it, but I certainly, and the book goes on to how I changed that modus operandi to avoid face issues with people. And there were other certain delicate situations that I was able to win yeah, on because well, I didn't confront people. That's like, no, I, I get that. It's, it's knowing your audience, right? It's, it's understanding the human condition of that person and being aware that it could be different from yours. So just because, and it doesn't mean one's good or one's bad. No or one's better or one's worse. It's the other part of the book. There's no judgment here. This is the way they grew up. This is how I grew up. But if you want to succeed, you got to, you need to understand that. There's a fundamental yeah. difference. And, and the way people get to solving problems is completely different. Too. And I bet that thought process, even here in your own office, just knowing different people, like just someone grew up in Seattle. They're a different person from the person that grew up in like Tennessee, but they're both working here in Northern Virginia. So, all right. So one person is going to hear something differently, even though I said the same exact thing. Well, that that is true. But we that I mean, it's much more subtle here. Yeah. But now once. I, I can tell you where you cross the pond and, and know you're dealing in the same language in, in uh, the UK. Oh, let me tell you, it can be so different. Oh, even in like London, like we're both speaking English kind of thing? Uh, that's right. I, it, I love that. I forget who said it. Maybe it was Churchill or somebody who says, we are, we, we are two people separated by a common language. <laughs> <laughs> and in many respects, it's true. Just the way we look at the world and the way, I mean, and... So I found, so running a business, I found people solve problems very differently. And the other thing I've found is you have to make sure that, and particularly as American, so I've learned an awful lot of lessons in terms of being an American and the way America is viewed around the world. And we tend to be a bit overburdened with our culture and our way. And that doesn't always solve issues properly. So the one thing I've learned is, is that you've got to have great local partners and you've got to let them make decisions. Because I've had so many instances where I remember going, wow, that is not how I'd have gone about that at all. But the solution was successful and it worked. 
because they understand the dynamic of the people of what's going on. And that's, you know, there's a book. So are you familiar with decentralized command? Jocko Willick writes a book, a book, extreme ownership, and he goes into. And yeah. And then what, what I try to do, and it's, I think true in terms of, so you've got to communicate well, what you hope to achieve. So not how, (laughs) so if you properly communicate what you're hoping to achieve, and you leave the how to them, and then you share the satisfaction of getting there. I mean, you let them know this is, you know, I need you. We never got to the the inception of Logenix. I think you we've got up to where you sold, you sold the company. Okay. So I, I took a non-compete. So turns out, long story short, so I had some partners. It wasn't, the partnership wasn't working great. We all did different things, mostly the success of the company. This whole thing with, with what opened up in Russian that I got in there really just, it, the company grew leaps and bounds. We went from a $30, $40 million a year company to a $100 million company. Yeah. I mean, in no time. Just So, Suter's King Kong, so any large organization that wanted to say that they had a global reach, now that entire huge, vast area that was a former Soviet Union had was in play in terms of saying you had a global empire and by 1996 i had seven offices in that region mm. so i had the, and that's right around when the internet started correct to roll around so i had the largest privately owned westernized service for logistics and transportation in yeah. the former soviet union so the sale was right it was right to get out of the partnership so in terms of the sale this was a bunch of guys trying to go to an IPO, you know, and at the time I didn't really realize what that meant. And, and I took the time later to kind of go back. So I was a very good P&L manager. I would have to say I wasn't that astute in terms of balance sheet and, and what mergers and acquisitions were based upon, nor did I know the relative failings of mergers and acquisitions. I mean, t- I got to I gotta say to this day, I don't get a lot of the mergers and acquisitions that I see in the market because more than 50% fail. What's, so what's the difference when you say of being a good P&L manager versus a good balance sheet manager? Well, it's kind of like running a checkbook. So a, a business is a huge checkbook, okay? But then there's the assets that you're building. So if they're insisting on your balance sheet, then it becomes, you know, the house that you bought, the, the, the debt you may have on your home, the equity you've got. So this all starts to then make up your balance sheet. Yeah. Okay. And once you're selling an organization, this, the, the balance sheet, the cash being thrown off and all of that start to really make a big deal. So a lot of that kind of was a bit over my head at the time of the sale. So I started to learn a lot about that after that. But anyway, Long story short, I got involved with a bunch of guys, and it became very clear to me within a year after the sale, there's not a group of guys I wanted to be with. Yeah. And so I got out, and I had to stay out for for two and a half years. And then they reneged on the agreement of my getting out, so then I was in court with them for another 18 months. And lo and behold, at at the end of it, these this these guys never did get the IPO, and this group wound up being taken over by another group, and those guys wound up being charged with the single largest fraud in U.S. Army history. Oh no, that's inconvenient. 
Well, this is, it just gives you an idea. This is the group of guys I was doing. So good for you for getting out. That like, <laughs> and I remember at the time, thinking, is this me? Am I right, just yeah. having a really hard time? So you had to non-compete for, it sounds like, for 24 yeah, that's months, right. right? That's right. What did you do? I looked into the whole merger and acquisition. I decided I wanted to understand how the sale of this company happened. And how was it that I wound up with a bunch of guys that I thought were crooks? Yeah. How did, you know, I want to make sure that didn't ever happen again. And then I had all of these thoughts in my head about, what could be a kind of a pay it forward thing. And I thought it'd be the type of thing that I wish I could have read when I was 22 or 23. So you wouldn't have gotten involved with or Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that I understood these, these concepts. But you got cast out when you sold the business. So you were at least comfortable there for that. And then, and, then, and then I won a healthy sum in the lawsuit as well. Right. So, so yeah. And that startup capital for Legenics, it sounds like. And you don't have a non-compete anymore because. Correct. So I, I was well-financed to start up. I would have been honor bound not to hire back the same people that I just sold, but they were also making, they hadn't, some of the, the people that still work for me today hadn't had raises in two years. So I went back and I stole the best and the brightest. So I pulled yeah. them right out. And I bet, so the, the employees probably didn't have a non-compete. They did not. The ones that had been with me prior, of course, had been on before the non-competes. So yeah. So, yes. And here you are, how many years has it been? 20 this year. 20 year anniversary. Did you guys do anything special? Or? Well, it will be in October. And we will, yes. <laughs> yeah. What are you guys going to do? You know, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I mean, we're, we're busy as can be and we're dealing with a worldwide pandemic. So. Right. I mean, right now we're, we're a big part of the, the PPE that is going around the world. So we've got thousands of containers going to be moving out of China to support the vaccine effort all over the world. Right. Okay. And the freight business right now is kind of upside down. Well, like nowadays, right? Someone who, let's say your business, someone who's just got an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Knows a little bit about logistics, has been doing transportation business, maybe just on the East Coast, for example, just up and down. What what can you tell them about getting started? Where's, where's step one? I never looked at really this being entrepreneurial. I just looked at stuff like, I know I can make that better. A better mousetrap does not find its own market. <laughs> you, you got to market the better mousetrap like hell. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of how I approached things. So if somebody is, is going at things like that and they, they've got that kind of that drive to make things better. So around the office are all of these things about excellence and doing things yeah. well. I took a picture of that one over there. That was I a, love that. John yeah. D. Rockefeller Jr. The secret of success is doing the common thing uncommonly well. Man, that, that's the secret of life. Yeah. Okay. And that is, that's why it's there. It's right by the water cool. Everybody goes to the water cool. So they, see right they see it. The other one that I love is on the refrigerator there, attributed to Aristotle. And that is, we are what we continually do. Therefore, excellence is not an act. It's a habit. Mm. And th those two things are, that's the basis of how this organization gets run. Yeah. Muscle memory. Just keep showing up. Keep doing it. If Consistency always, is I mean, you're not always going to get there. As a matter of fact, you achieve excellence very rarely. But as long as you're trying for it and shooting for it, you're usually not going to go too far astray. So, yeah, I, I mean... Those two things to me are. So you think if you just kind of frame your, your daily processes around those ideas, whatever you're doing. What can you do better? Yeah. And, and, is it, and is it sellable? 
So you kind of, so. Well, yeah, you're right. Like if you're doing something that no one wants to do. Right. Right. You know, there's a, there might be a market for moon dust. I don't think there's, I think there's a big market for it right now, but maybe. Or you can create the market. That's, that's really challenging, but some people are able to do that. So I, I think that's the secret. Is if you think that can happen, and you've got to know that that there are a lot of people that want to do it. So what I saw was a really difficult market that not a lot of people wanted to go spend time in. I learned a ton about how the developing world was operating, and and again, kind of going to the lessons and how to do well and the ins ins and outs. And I made some great friendships. I met other very entrepreneurial guys who who could make that area work they could get things done so i learned a lot of that when i was still working for somebody else and i and i realized not a lot of people like doing this not a lot of people like going here and the 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 barriers to entry the threshold is pretty high not because the business is hard to get into it's because this area is really hard to know you gotta want to go and enjoy it. I love Africa, India. I mean, it, culturally, I love traveling. I hate the actual toing and froing nowadays. Yeah. Spent my life in different parts of jet lag. I, I tell people that I know the ins and outs of jet lag, like all of the thirty <laughs> different levels. Somebody was asking me how how long I will work. I said, you know, I don't feel like I'm working. I haven't felt like I've been working for better part of 25, 30 years. That's not how I view this. Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing it right from what I can see. Yeah. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I feel like I can talk to you for hours and <laughs> this has uh, been enjoyable. I'm really glad we got to talk about your book. Mm-hmm. And I think that anyone, where can they get this book? Where can they, anyone? It's available it? on Amazon. Okay. It's lies, bribes and peril. The latest, the, the newest edition is expanded and updated. It was first published in uh, 2008. And so the last 12, 10 years, I wanted to include in there to show that nothing has changed. <laughs> the, <laughs> lessons, <clears throat> the lessons I learned in my 20s are still applicable today around the world. Well, my biggest hope is that someone who listens to this podcast reaches out to either you or I uh, to get to know you and to you know lean on you for some mentorship or advice. So hopefully someone out there who wants to get into your line of work or learn something from you or just even apply it somewhere else. Hopefully we both get to talk to that person soon. Thanks, Bob. I enjoyed it. Enjoy being with you. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.